Well, it's nice to look out and see folks here. Last week we did just a live stream service, and I think there were six total here. And I was preaching to an empty auditorium, and so it's good to see smiling faces there, or at least masked faces, any kind of faces. Nice to see them. I invite you to give your attention to God's Word, Joshua chapter 10. As we continue along in our series and our study of this book, we go now. That was essentially what God had told the Israelites. That's an extreme paraphrase. But the time had come for them for their wilderness wanderings to end and actually to cross the Jordan and take possession of the land of promise. And we're reading about that taking of possession that was to happen. Uh, Wherever their feet would tread, God told them that land would be theirs. And so to the degree that they trusted God and obeyed him, and acted on faith, they experienced success. And so we continue in our study as we come to chapter 10. And we'll read verses 1 through 15. So let's all listen up as I read God's Word. As soon as Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, heard how Joshua had captured Ai and had devoted it to destruction, doing to Ai and its king, as he had done to Jericho and its king, and how the inhabitants of Gibeon had made peace with Israel and were among them, he feared greatly because Gibeon was a great city, like one of the royal cities, and because it was greater than Ai and all its men were warriors. So Adonai Zedek, king of Jerusalem, sent to Hoham, king of Hebron, to Piram, king of Jarmu, to Japhia, king of Lachish, and to Debir, king of Eglon, saying, Come up to me and help me, and let us strike Gibeon. For it has made peace with Joshua and with the people of Israel. Then the five kings of the Amorites, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon, gathered their forces and went up with all their armies and encamped against Gibeon and made war against it. And the men of Gibeon sent to Joshua at the camp in Gilgal, saying, Do not relax your hand from your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites who dwell in the hill country are gathered against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal, he and all the people of war with him, and all the mighty men of valor. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. For I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand against or before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly, having marched up all night from Gilgal. And the Lord threw them into a panic before Israel, who struck them with a great blow at Gibeon and chased them by the way of the ascent of Beth Horon and struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And they fled before Israel. And while they were going down the ascent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw down large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died because of the hailstones than the sons of Israel killed with a sword. At that time, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord gave the Amorites over to the sons of Israel and said in the sight of Israel, Son, Stand still at Gibeon, and moon, 
in the valley of Ajalon. And the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation took vengeance on their enemies. Is this not written in the book of Jeshar? The sun stopped in the midst of heaven and did not hurry to set for about a whole day. There has been no day like it before or since, when the Lord heeded the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel. So Joshua returned, and all Israel with him, to the camp at Gilgal. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever, and this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. And so we recently have had to say goodbye to one of our church fathers in the Presbyterian Church in America, Dr. Frank Barker, who went home to be with the Lord. And then only a few days after his memorial service, his wife Barbara left us and entered the presence of the Lord. Frank Barker was a man that the Lord used to start the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama, one of our denomination's very largest churches. They started with a handful of people. And Frank Barker, if you knew him, was not a, a, a dynamic, charismatic leader or individual. He was a very humble, personable man. The first time I heard him preach, when he got up, I thought, there must be two Frank Barkers, and I'm hearing the other one. Because he just didn't seem to be that dynamic. But five minutes into his message, I remember how my heart was captured, and suddenly I was riveted to the words he was speaking, and I thought... Here is a man who is filled with God's Spirit. And he told a story about how when he first was beginning his ministry in Birmingham, he was involved in a, in a teen camp right outside of Birmingham. And they had it in the summertime, and he said it was the most disorganized thing he'd ever seen in his life. And it frustrated him because the lady who was heading up the whole thing just seemed not to be organized the way that he thought she should be. And as she was presenting the program that was going to take place, Frank interrupted her and said, uh, what I want to know is what are we going to do if it rains? You don't have any backup plan for rain. We're, we're in Birmingham, Alabama in the middle of the summer. It's going to rain. And she looked at him and said, no, it won't. And he said, yes, it will. And she said, no, it won't. We prayed it wouldn't. He said, well, that's wonderful. I'm glad you prayed, but we need a backup plan. She said, no, we don't. And she proceeded. And the week of the camp, it rained all over the state of Alabama, but not where the kids were having that camp. That lady was known to be a prayer warrior. And she and others had prayed for that camp all through the year and had asked that God would grant them fair weather. And he did. Now, you can take that for what it's worth. It's pouring down the rain outside right now. But even so, we need to have a very clear understanding that the God we serve and worship is a sovereign God. He is the one who has created the world, and he has created the very laws that operate it, and he is sovereign over them and not subject to them. Please understand that, or otherwise this passage will make no sense to you whatsoever. God had determined that his people would take possession of the land of promise. It was a promise that he had made to Abraham, and he was fulfilling it. He had rescued them from Egypt. He had brought them through the wilderness by way of the Red Sea, which was miraculously parted so that they came through on dry land. 
we keep repeating that over and over because this is the redemptive act of God in the Old Testament, the deliverance of his people from Egypt. He successfully brought them from there. He didn't lead them into the promised land so that they would fail miserably. Now, let's fast forward to our own experience. God has saved us by his grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has delivered us from slavery. Not captivity in Egypt, but slavery to sin. He has delivered us from that. He has not brought you to this point to abandon you. The good work he has begun in you, he will complete it unto the day of Christ Jesus. We can be assured that God in his sovereign power, having saved us, will keep us securely. We can be confident of that, even if the lights go out in a moment. And I have to talk louder. We can be confident that the Lord saves us and he keeps us. But what we need to see when we look at this passage, among other things, are these things. First of all, we see an array of people who rise up and oppose the people of God. Now, I'm not going to go back and try to pronounce or mispronounce their names again. One of these days, I feel like we're all going to owe a bunch of people an apology for mispronouncing their names in Scripture. But what we have here are an assortment of people coming from various regions in the central area of the promised land who oppose God's people. They, they fight against the Gibeonites who had formed a, a treaty or covenant with the people of God. We talked about that last week and how that the Gibeonites fooled the Israelites into making this treaty. You know, they pretended like they had come from a long way off. They had cake. They said it was freshly baked when they left, but now it's all dry and crumbly. See? And these shoes, they were brand new when we left, but now they're falling apart and our clothes are falling apart. See how far we've come? And come to find out, they just come from a couple of ridges over. They were right there, local folks. But even so, the Israelites were fooled. They made a covenant with them, and yet the covenant is kept. And so when the Gibeonites, seen as the enemy among the central kings there in the promised land, are attacked, we come to a realization that oftentimes the one thing that unites unbelievers is their opposition to the Lord. Satan is not a good organizer. If you look at the world that is under his dominion, those who follow him are not well organized. Now, you could also argue that the church is not well organized either, but that's no fault of the Lord. That all is a part of the way that the sin nature works itself out. And so that we are, in large measure in our lost condition, very difficult to govern. What unites these people together when they had otherwise no common interest? is that God's people are on the scene. And because they are governed not by themselves, but by the evil one whose fingerprints are all over this, we need to realize that many times, if not most times, one thing that unites unbelievers is their common opposition to the things of God. We see it in the New Testament, Mark chapter 3, verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians. Now, I'm not going to go into explaining this, but just to understand, there were no two groups who were any further apart on the ideological or political spectrum than the Pharisees and the Herodians. 
the Pharisees who considered themselves to be profoundly religious and righteous and the Herodians who didn't want anything to do with religion or the things of God. They made no pretense about it. They were the freewheelers of their day. Don't tie us down with that religion stuff. They had nothing in common except their opposition to Jesus. You see, there's nothing new under the sun. We oftentimes see the forces united in similar fashion today. And so they came together against him, that is the Lord Jesus, and how they might destroy him. And today we often see the religious and the irreligious united in their opposition to the Lord Jesus. That happened in Eastern Europe. It wasn't simply that the communists were out to destroy Christianity. Oftentimes, it was the organized so-called church that opposed it. When I was in Romania in 1994, uh, some of the locals there told us the story about a man named Michael who had lived there in the area of Bayush, Romania, who had come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus, and he was evangelizing throughout the countryside. And the leaders of the church in that region viewed him as a threat because people were coming to a personal faith in Christ and were rejecting the religion of works being taught by the organized church in that region. And so they had it in for him. And it wasn't the communists who came after him. It was local church leaders. And they caught him and they beat him and they threw him in a, in a barn and they put a bull in there that was known to be vicious and it gored several individuals. And they decided they'd let the bull finish him off. Well, Michael crawled into a corner of the barn and every time that bull would charge him with his long horns, the horns would, would collide with the corners of the, of the barn and Michael was right in between them there and he was safe. And every time that bull came up there like that and just was trying to shove those horns into him, Michael would just kind of reach up and pray and pet him on the nose. When they found him the next morning, Michael, the evangelist, and that bull were lying down together sleeping in the barn. And they let him go. And he kept evangelizing. It was the church, so-called, that was in opposition to the work of missions there. And so we see that unbelief will unite in its opposition. We need to know that that's the way the world operates. Well, moving on quickly. Another point worth making is just simply this. Promises are for keeping. Now, we can talk about how the Gibeonites deceived the Israelites into making the promise that they made not to destroy them. But even so, once the promise was made, God's people were obligated to keep it. So when Gibeon sent for help, Joshua could have said, I'm not honoring that promise. They deceived us into making it. it, it it's not valid. He didn't do that. They honored the covenant. He took his fighting men and they charged over to the region of Gibeon to honor the promise made. We remember how that later David would be an example for us in the keeping of a promise in 2 Samuel 21.7 when he spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan. Uh, Saul's grandson, Mephibosheth, who could have been turned over to be executed with others. But David remembered the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the promise that he'd made to his friend Jonathan, son of Saul. He honored it and kept it, and Mephibosheth was saved. Many other examples. Remember 
promises are made for keeping. I don't know what that means, but if anybody sees anything coming up behind me, don't say anything. I'll never know it. The third thing, remember that the word of the Lord is our confidence in the face of opposition. The Israelites were able to go and to face this opposition courageously because of God's promise. The Lord delivered his word to them. He said, uh, he said you know, don't, don't fear them. They, uh, they will not succeed against you. Do not fear them, for I have given them into your hands. Not a man of them shall stand before you. This is really a reiteration of what God had already said in Joshua chapter 1. You know, many times we're, we're looking for some sort of uh, new or never heard before word from God. People look for that in dreams. They, they look for that in, in the frost on their windshields in that part of the country where it actually does things like that, where it frosts. I read that just recently. Yeah, a man was looking for a word from God in the frost on his windshield. He thought he could discern words written there. Like those writing spiders that... I heard about growing up, you know, that would weave those webs. Always said, if you if they ever write your name, you'll die. Really, they said that. Never saw one word written by a spider. People are looking for revelations from God in all kinds of places, but God's word is the word He has already delivered. And so, what we experience from the Lord is not some new revelation never heard by people before. It's word already given. And so what he does here is reiterate the word delivered in Joshua chapter 1 in this instance, reminding them that the enemy will not prevail against them. And so believing that, they go forth. Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. We derive our hope from a word that is recorded, delivered ages ago. It's God's word for us today. And Paul reminds us also in 2 Corinthians 10, 4, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. You know, we sang onward Christian soldiers. That's not a hymn to motivate us and go home and load up our rifles and shotguns and go take the country back by force of arms. It is a reminder to us that we are engaged in spiritual warfare because we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against those invisible powers and authorities. And so we very much are at war, but we don't utilize the weapons manufactured by humans to conduct it. But we go forth confidently knowing that God's word has promised us victory. Now, we may not experience it in the short term. We may see political defeats and ideological setbacks, but we know ultimately God will stand by and honor his promises. And then finally, the part that everybody's interested in. What about this day that goes on for longer than a day? You would not believe, or maybe you would, how much stuff has been written about what happened. How that the day was extended so that the Israelites' victory was made so much more complete. I am not even going to try to delve into it. 
And let me say this, having read quite a number of views on what actually happened scientifically on this day, I am absolutely convinced that science cannot explain it. And so I'm going to say to you right up front, I don't know how God did it. I know that he did it. And if it could be explained by science, it wouldn't be a miracle. That's probably not very satisfying to you. But I absolutely believe that God in his miraculous sovereign power extended the day so that the Israelites were able to succeed in battle completely. Now listen, let's just start with the basics. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If you believe that statement in Scripture, then you will also come to understand and believe exactly what the Lord Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 26, when he looked at the people and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. If you believe that God created everything out of nothing, listen, we're, we're still finding out about the universe. They've just deployed another uh, telescope into Space orbiting around the earth. We're, we're going to see even more vast amounts of the universe than we've seen before. Billions of galaxies, each containing billions of stars. And how many systems are associated with those? It's absolutely mind-blowing. And if you believe that God created all of that out of nothing, what is it to think that he could extend a day for as many hours as he wants to to accomplish his purposes? We know that when the Lord Jesus died on the cross, it went dark for three hours. And about the sixth hour, that was around noontime, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, about three in the afternoon, in other words, when the sun's light failed. And so what God did for his people in the Old Testament in extending daylight hours in the New Testament, when his son was hanging on the cross, dying for the sins of the world, the sun was blotted out. In a visual demonstration of the fact that Jesus endured our sin and became a curse for our sakes. God can do whatever he needs to do to accomplish his purpose, even altering the natural order to do it. And many other things we could look at. But think of this. How can you scientifically explain the resurrection of the Lord Jesus? How can we even begin to understand that a corpse lying in a tomb, not just for an hour or two, raising the possibility of a resuscitation. Resuscitation of a corpse having laid in a tomb for the number of hours that Jesus' body lay there is impossible. He wasn't resuscitated. He was resurrected. We can't begin to comprehend that through scientific means. And yet God did it. Not only raised him up, he wasn't like he was before. There were things that were similar. He could be recognized, but there were extraordinary things also. How do we explain how he could pass through walls with doors that were locked? How did he get out of the tomb? Remember, the angel didn't remove the stone so Jesus could get out. The stone was rolled away so people could look in there and see that he wasn't there. God raised him from the dead as he altered natural laws in order to accomplish his purpose in redemption. And he does that with every miracle. 
whether it's Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead or giving the blind the ability to see or healing the deaf or causing the lame to be able to walk, or whether it's Peter who is in chains and the angel comes and the chains simply fall off and he walks out and even the door opens in front of him as we read about in Acts. Or when a man lost an axe head and was concerned that his master was going to punish him, Elisha said, don't worry about that. And he threw a piece of wood in the stream and the axe head floated. You try that sometime. God is able. And so as we read about this, that the sun stood still and the moon stood still so that the Israelites were able to sweep the land before them. Just know that God is able to deliver, that he honors his promises, that he accomplishes in the Lord Jesus Christ everything necessary for our rescue. And so in our day, we look at poll numbers and we fret. Church buildings are closing. I read about one in Pennsylvania just recently that on Christmas Eve, held its last service. It had been holding services in that location since 1800. And the congregation dwindled, and this little Presbyterian church held its final service on Christmas Eve. And we're reading about stories like that all the time. More and more people are turning away from the church. Fewer and fewer people are seeing what you're doing right now as a priority. Hey, and I know I'm preaching to the choir. You came today. I mean, look at what's going on out there. Lord's just telling you you need to stay for the ten, the eleven o'clock service too. I mean, that's no Presbyterian sprinkle. That's a Baptist downpour going on out there right now. You go out and that, you're going to get immersed. And all these discouraging things that we're reading about. I mean, it seems like people care less and less about the things of God, and it's it's true, I suppose. And if you're looking at all of that and wondering how a little work like this in Bonita Springs, Florida is going to succeed, then you're probably going to wind up rather demoralized and thinking, yep, we're the last. I guess when it's over, we'll just close the door and go home. But if your faith is not in people, but in the man, Christ Jesus. But if your understanding is that God is faithful in all generations, regardless of all that is opposed to his people, knowing that he has begun a work that he will be faithful to complete, we have every reason to believe that the church will triumph in this and in all ages and for eternity. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Joshua God's man at that time, remember his name, Joshua, Yeshua, Jesus, is a foreshadowing of the Christ who would come. And our Jesus, who is triumphant over all enemies. Listen, if Christ was able to defeat the enemy at the cross in securing our salvation, we know that he didn't bring us to this moment to abandon us. I'm not preaching some sort of human triumphalism. I'm not trying to proclaim some health, wealth gospel to tell you, yeah, if you'll just think the right things and do the right things, you'll have money and we'll succeed. I'm not saying any of that. What I'm saying is 
We need to abandon all faith and trust in our abilities and place them in Christ alone. For he alone can deliver us. And so I plead with you. Pray for your children. Pray for your grandchildren. Pray for your great-grandchildren. Instead of fretting and worrying about what they're hearing in school or what they're learning at college and wondering what it's doing to them, spend time on your knees and engage the enemy there. You know, worrying won't help a thing. You can fret all day long and you're not going to change the mind of one single professor. But it'll have a tremendously detrimental effect on you. That's what Peter Marshall said about the sign that he saw when he was driving through western North Carolina back in the 1930s. He said, watch for falling rocks. He said it struck him, no pun intended, that worrying would have absolutely no effect on those rocks. But it would affect him a lot. You can worry and fret about what they're hearing and about what they are made susceptible to on the Internet. Or you can get busy and pray and seek the Lord on their behalf and believe that he is able to deliver. That's just one example. How we need to pray for the church. How we need to pray for pastors and elders. Women's ministry coordinator. Our music leaders. And all who are engaged in the work of the Lord. And believe that God is able. And stop putting our confidence in the things of the world. Don't worry about what Gallup says. Be concerned about what God says. And put your faith in his anointed, Jesus Christ. He's able. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless us, O Lord, that even though we are weak and frail, and even though, Father, there are many opposed to you and to your anointing, we pray, O God, that you will bless us to see victory, to know that the Lord Jesus is securely on his throne, and so we ask in his name that you will grant success to the work of the gospel in the world, even in our day. That in spite of what the news says, we pray that a growing number of men and women and boys and girls will come to know the Lord Jesus Christ because of the power of gospel that is your power to save. Lord, bless us to be a people who live by faith and not by sight. Grant that we may be a people who seek you in prayer and who confidently go forth in the work you've called us to. Believing, O Father, that you are able. And so we confidently profess, as the Lord Jesus taught us, that nothing is impossible with you. So we pray that in this generation you will make a way where there seems to be no way, that the light of the gospel may shine forth more brightly than ever before, and that the church will not diminish, but will grow. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The battle is the Lord's. If you're able, let's stand together and sing.
right at this moment or wherever it is you may go. Go with God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up unto you his countenance and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. And everyone said together, Amen. Amen.